everyone, and welcome to Building the Machine, the new podcast series from Red Leg Nation Radio. Over these 12 episodes, we're bringing you the story of the Big Red Machine, Cincinnati's baseball dynasty that changed the game forever. Day by day, year by year, you're seeing how the machine was constructed, all the highs and lows, and the legacy that remains. Each week, we've been bringing you a new episode focusing on a single year from 1969 to 1979. If you didn't get to experience the Big Red Machine as they were dominating baseball, you're going to enjoy the chance to experience the story as if you were there and learn more about the names and events that were so important in shaping the narrative around the Cincinnati Reds. We're also talking about how things were different in that era, from salary negotiations to the way the game was played on the field to the things that happened that made this team become what it became. If you were fortunate enough to watch the machine live, this has been a fun blast from the past. This is episode 9. So long, big dog. Joining me again to talk about the 1977 Cincinnati Reds is Bill Lack. How are you today, Bill? I'm wonderful. I'm ready to talk about the year of 1977. 1977 will begin, as we always do, with a look at what was going on in the world in 1977 to give a little bit of context to the discussion. In the news, that was the year that Jimmy Carter was sworn in as the 39th President of the United States. One day later, he pardons Vietnam War draft evaders. Silver Jubilee celebrations are held in the United Kingdom to celebrate 25 years of Elizabeth II's reign. I'm sure you were really, back in 77, really celebrating the Silver Jubilee, weren't you, Bill? As much as I was the 50th. The first Apple II series computers go on sale that year, and Atari released its video computer system in North America. And, of course, Atari became the biggest gaming system in the world, and we know what Apple did. So a couple of big electronics releases that year, Bill. I know you're a big Apple guy. I am a big Apple guy. I never had an Apple II, but I had my first computer was an Apple SE that I had on my desk that had a screen that was, what, about four inches across, six inches across. Good times. Did you have an Atari gaming system? No, I've never, I've never been a video game guy, ever. Oh, man, I'll never forget the Christmas where we got the Atari system and Missile Command and Pac-Man. Oh, my goodness. Just amazing. It, it, was, it was amazing, huh? Yeah, it was incredible. 1977, David Berkowitz was captured in Yonkers, New York, after over a year of murders in New York City as the son of Sam. Now, Bill, uh, tell us about uh, what happened in the Cincinnati area that year. Well, and uh, this was over Memorial Day weekend in 1977, the Beverly Hills Supper Club fire over across the river in northern Kentucky killed 165 people. And I, I knew people that were there that night. In fact, I, somebody I knew from high school perished in that fire. I had a number of people that I know that were there the night before. I happened to be home on leave. This, this is a very big memory for me. Yeah, horrific, horrific. Let's move on to movies and a more lighthearted affair. George Lucas's Star Wars opened in cinemas and became the highest grossing film of its time. Bill, I'm sure you were there on day one to see Star Wars. No, but I, I did see it in the theater. I, I honestly don't remember seeing Star Wars in the theater. I saw the, the next two in the theater later on, but I don't remember seeing Star Wars. I will never forget going to uh, The Phantom Menace with Bill as he had on his Obi-Wan Kenobi costume. Phantom Menace? No, never saw it. <laughs> Smokey and the Bandit also came out that year. And another underrated star-related film, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Steven Spielberg, Smoking the Bandit, and Close Encounters with the second and third on the box office list. I never really got Close Encounters. I've seen it a number of times, but it really does nothing for me. What about Smoking the Bandit? 
I loved Smokey and the Bandit. I saw, I rewatched it again recently. Gleason is freaking hysterical. Yeah, if you don't love Smokey and the Bandit, what's wrong with you? Yeah, there's definitely something wrong with you. But I think Gleason is what makes that movie. Number four on the box office list, Saturday Night Fever, which launched John Travolta into the stratosphere. We'll talk more about that maybe later. Roger Moore's best Bond film came out that year. Do you agree with that? That's my opinion. The Spy Who Loved Me. No, I don't. Which his co-star later on was Ringo Starr's wife. Ringo Starr later married Barbara Bach. Uh, no, I think Roger Moore's best Bond film was uh, made a couple years later, For Your Eyes Only. Mm. What's the, what's uh, Roger Moore's worst? Uh, his worst is the all-time worst James Bond, A View to a Kill. Wrong. You're wrong yeah. again, Bill. It's Moonraker. No, I'm, I'm never wrong about Bond. It's Moonraker. Moonraker would probably be my second worst. Okay. But View well, to a Kill is is the worst. Well, we're in the same neighborhood. Per- <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Perhaps my favorite film of all time came out that year. Annie Hall, it would go on to win Best Picture, and Woody Allen would win Best Director. What else came out that year, Bill? Annie Hall's a wonderful film. It, it really is. Um, other movies that I enjoyed that year, The Goodbye Girl, where Richard Dreyfuss won the Academy Award, Oh God with George Burns, and a, a wonderfully funny movie, Slapshot with Paul Newman. Classic hockey movie. Yes. Talk to us about the world in music in 1977, Bill. Well, Zeppelin, Led Zeppelin set a, a new world record for attendance in an indoor concert in uh, the Silverdome where they played before 76,229 people on their 77 North American tour. You mentioned Saturday Night Fever earlier. The soundtrack was released, and it featured five new BG compositions, and it'd go, down and, uh, go on to become the best-selling movie or album of all time. And I recently saw something about the, the movie and, and one of these, you know, trivium TV shows telling them about it. And if you remember the movie where John Travolta and whatever the woman's name was, I can't remember her name, were practicing their dance routines in the dance studio. In the When they were shooting the movie, they were using the song Lowdown by Boz Skaggs from the Silk Degrees album. And they thought they'd use it in the movie. Well, the boss Skaggs would not let them use it in the movie, so they had to reach. They had to. They didn't reshoot it, but they changed the music for the movie. And they figured out later this probably cost Boss Skaggs like three to four million dollars because he wouldn't let him use this this uh, song in the movie. His accountant uh, never recovered. Yeah, I'm not sure Boss Skaggs' bank account ever recovered. <laughs> that year as well, singer songwriter Billy Joel released his fifth studio album, The Stranger became the first of several hit albums, spawning five hit singles, going 10 times platinum in the U.S., and later coming in at number 70 on the Rolling Stones' list of 500 greatest albums of all time. Now, you don't seem like a Billy Joel guy to me, Bill. Am I wrong? No, you're wrong. I'm a big fan of Billy Joel's, and I think The Stranger is probably his best album ever. Tell us more about music in 1977. Well, one of my favorites, uh, Steely Dan, the jazz rock group, released their sixth album, Asia, and it was a, a super great album and it became the uh their heart their highest charting album of all time went to number three and went on to sell over five million copies some of the biggest hit singles that year were hotel california by the eagles i feel love by the disco queen donna summer uh tonight's the night by rod stewart i'm your boogeyman by kc and the sunshine band and one of my favorite well not one of my favorite songs but one of my favorite artists jimmy buffett had his second hit with margaritaville Outstanding. Some of the the kids these days would be interested to know that the rock band Toto was founded that year. Toto uh, Africa, 
That song Africa is still popular amongst the kiddos these days. You'll be you'll find surprising perhaps. The Supremes in 1977 performed their final concert as well, final concert together at uh, Drury Lane, London. Then they disbanded permanently. And then Elvis Presley, who we will talk about again in a moment, held his last concert at Market Square Arena in Indianapolis, Indiana. Bill, you want to talk about television here? Sure. The TV show Soap debuted on ABC and launched the career of Billy Crystal. And if you've never seen the TV show Soap, it's a very, very funny television show. Uh, also debuting that year was the show Eight is Enough, Three's Company, The Love Boat, and one that you and I both probably watch a lot of, This Week in Baseball. Oh, absolutely. You know, my brother actually texted me uh, I don't know, a week or so ago and said, you've got to turn on uh, uh, Fox Sports 1. He said they're just playing over and over these This Week in Baseball shows. They were all from the early 80s. Yeah, Ron Guidry was in there, and then we saw one later where uh, Dave Stewart made some intemperate, intemperate comments that would not have gone over very well these days, but it was just fast and was fascinating to watch. Uh, highlights from Mario Soto against the Braves. It was uh, it was it was amazing to watch even this day. I wish, wish there was something like that. You can't do it. The media environment is so much different now, but that was a big deal this weekend. Baseball was back then when we didn't have so much baseball content everywhere you looked. Yeah, you didn't miss it. I mean, you watched it every Saturday because you got your highlights from everybody. Yep, and you got to see players that you never would see otherwise right good stuff uh, also the uh, premiering that year was the richard pryor show and you may not have heard of the richard pryor show and the reason for that was it only lasted four episodes before pryor quit over censorship and interference by nbc i know that comes as a big shock to everybody that they'd be trying to censor richard pryor imagine that also, but comic genius richard pryor yes. also that year the amazing spider-man was on television and if you've never seen this it was so horrible, and the special effects were so bad, it almost has to be seen to be believed. Yeah, it it's one that, and you can find clips of it, it's one that it looks like a parody that somebody just filmed, you know, out in the suburbs or something, you know. It was just awful. Yeah, it's a neighborhood kid shot it in their backyard. I mean, when he shot his web, it, looked, it was like a rope. <laughs> <laughs> right, it's just, uh, you, if you've not seen it, you're missing out, absolutely. Yep. Bill Murray joined the cast of Saturday Night Live that year. Who did he replace, Bill? Chevy Chase, Chevy. who after one year thought he was too big for Saturday Night Live. Yeah, yeah. Although i, I got to say that uh, in the last uh, couple of weeks, I watched a movie featuring both of these uh, actors, Bill Murray and Chevy Chase. I'll give you one guess as to which movie that was. Caddyshack. Caddyshack, starring the immortal Rodney Dangerfield. Rodney Dangerfield. And if you've never if you never got a chance to see Rodney Dangerfield in concert, you missed out. Watch him on YouTube. He is freaking hysterical. Yeah, we talk about comedy geniuses, and he really is. Uh, he gets no respect, Bill. None at all. Sorry. That year, 11-year-old Janet Jackson joined the cast of Good Times, where her character was adopted by Wilona. Uh, what left the air that year? Uh, the classic Sanford and Son. Maybe the greatest sitcom of all time, The Mary Tyler Moore Show. The Electric Company, The Children's Show. And NBC's, I think it was NBC's, Emergency, all left the air that year. Sad times. In the world of sports, the Portland Trailblazers defeated the Philadelphia 76ers to win the NBA Finals four games to two. Bill Walton was selected as the MVP of the series. He was, of course, the star Hall of Fame center for the Blazers. The Sixers were led by Julius Irving. That's Dr. J, Bill. I was a huge Dr. J fan. I, I, I remember, I'm not a huge NBA fan, and I was a big, a big bit bigger fan back then. And I was a, a big 76ers fan at the time because of the doctor. 
And the Sixers had great teams for about, what, about 10 years then? And I think they won one title in those 10 years. Yeah, they didn't win one until 83, but they had such, they were right there every year. Yep. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers finally win a game after losing their first 26 in franchise history. Man, just historic. Yeah, one, one of the best quotes I've ever heard was uh, a reporter said uh, that their head coach was John McKay, who had been at USC for a million years. And when uh, the Bucks were created, he went he left USC to be their coach. And they asked McKay, could you tell us about the execution of your offense? He said, it sounds like a good idea. <laughs> yeah, when can we schedule that? Oh, Super Bowl eleven. The Oakland Raiders finally won their first uh, Super Bowl by beating the Minnesota Vikings 32-14. to Most valuable player, wide receiver Fred Boletnikoff. Who never dropped a pass, ever. Never. Ever. It, it's documented. The Montreal Canadiens swept the Boston Bruins in four games to win their second straight Stanley Cup. A.J. Foyt became the first driver to win the Indianapolis 500 four times. And a couple of baseball notes, the Toronto Blue Jays and Seattle Mariners played their first game. And then in something that maybe foreshadows what we're going to talk about at the end of this podcast, Reggie Jackson bl- blasted three home runs to lead the Yankees to victory over the Dodgers in Game 6 of the World Series. Who was? Uh, let's look, talk about who uh, was born and who left us that year, Bill. I'll let you begin. Uh, Kanye West, John Mayer, uh, Michael Fassbender, Tom Hardy, Sarah Michelle Gellar, boxer Floyd Mayweather Jr., Randy Moss and Tom Brady from the NFL and Roy Holiday were all born that year. 1977 also, we lost Elvis Presley, the king of rock and roll. Died at his home in Graceland at age 42. 75,000 fans lined the street of Memphis for his funeral on August the 18th. Do you remember that uh, that time, I remember, moment in history? Yeah, I, remember, I was in Jacksonville it, it, uh, on the base at NAS Jacksonville when I heard that Elvis had passed. Was it... Uh, was it a gut punch to a lot of people at the time? Uh, to a lot of people, I was never a huge Elvis guy myself. I'm a huge Beatles fan, and I think you tend to find people are either fans of the Beatles or fans of Elvis, and there aren't a whole lot of people that are both. I was a Beatles person, and I have some friends that were Elvis people, and they don't think much of the Beatles. Uh, so while it was, you know, you knew it was a, a huge event in music history and in music, it, it didn't ring, you know, it didn't depressed me the way it did a lot of people. Right. Three legendary American entertainers died that year. Comedian Groucho Marx died of pneumonia at the age of 86. Uh, Silent film actor Charlie Chaplin had a stroke at the age of 88. And Bing Crosby, the voice, all passed away that year. Rough year for legendary entertainers. Super rough year. Also, we lost that year. Freddie Prince committed suicide at age 22, which is terrible. Legendary actor Joan Crawford passed away that year. And one that kind of bought, you know, ring. Now, this one did get me. Three members of the rock band Leonard Skinner die in a charter plane crash outside Gillsburg, Mississippi, three days after releasing their fifth studio album, Street Survivor. Perishing in the crash was lead singer and band frontman Ronnie Van Zant. Singer Cassie Gaines and guitarist Steve Gaines. Yeah, just a, a horrible year. So let's move on to baseball, shall we? Yeah, of course. For for Reds fans, this isn't going to be a banner year for us either. So, <laughs> spoiler alert: nineteen seventy six, the Reds finished. As you remember, if you listened to the last episode, one hundred and two wins, sixty losses. Finished first in the National League Western Division. Won the National League Championship Series in a sweep over the Philadelphia Phillies. 
and won the World Series, their second consecutive World Championship, in a sweep over the New York Yankees. So we move into 1977, and free agency smacks the Reds in the face immediately. Didn't it, Bill? Yeah, I mean, they had, they had been pretty sure they were going to probably lose Don Gullett when he, when he played out his option the year before. He'd always had injury problems. In 76, he had some shoulder issues that he had said were caused by him falling off a ladder repairing a barn down on his farm. But the Reds believed, and, and Rose and Morgan had said that he'd really hurt it in the Super Teams competition in Hawaii on the obstacle course. And if you don't know what that was, back in the day, ABC used to have these these competitions. One one called, was called Superstars. It was individuals. And then later on, they did Super Teams and what it was was individuals from all kinds of different sports in the Superstars competition, and they would compete in different activities, different sporting events, and accumulate points, and, you know, you, you, you they would crown a champion. I remember Kyle Rote Jr., I think, won it a bunch of times early on. Uh, and then when that was very popular later on, they did the Super Teams, and they had the World Championship teams competing against each other. And that's where the, the Reds and Morgan and Rose had said, where Gullah had really hurt his shoulder. And he and, and and so on top of all the, the the injury problems, Gullet was also upset that the Reds wouldn't offer him a long term contract, which because of the injury problems, probably as much to do with that as anything. And so Don Gullet moves on to the Yankees, and then comes the uh, the the shot heard around the world, essentially in terms of the Big Red Machine. This whole podcast series we're going to be discussing over the next few episodes, anyway. Where does the when does the Big Red Machine end? And there are different markers. A lot of people would put the end of the Big Red Machine though on December sixteenth. 1976, I think, Bill. Uh, what uh, what happened that day? Well, the the Reds traded Tony Perez to the Expos and basically didn't get anything back for him. They felt that they had to get Dreesen into the into the starting lineup, and they either wanted a platoon at first base, which Perez flat turned down, or else they wanted a competition to to see who was going to be the first baseman, which he also said no about. And, and the Reds probably knew he would say no to that. But as we've talked about before, you know. Bob Housen was from the, the, the Branch Rickey School of Management, and he always believed that you were better off trading uh, aging veterans and trading a year too soon rather than a year too late, especially if you had a, a reasonable replacement, which he felt he had in Dreesen. And, and the front office, I think they, they, they realized later that they undervalued Perez's effect in the clubhouse. And I want to read a little something from uh, Big Red Dynasty. It says, for an organization that prided itself on thorough research, the failure to understand Perez's importance to the team was inexcusable. On a team full of big egos and a wash in braggadocio, Perez policed the excesses. And I think that pretty well says it. You know, I've long been a, a guy that kind of discounted oh, clubhouse uh, things and intangibles, and but here's one instance where I think you can make a really good argument. And we'll talk more about this as we, as we go on, because you can see some instances of this. Dreesen could hit probably not good as good defensively as Perez. Those are things we can kind of measure in somewhat, but I, you cannot measure what Perez meant in that clubhouse. And there are real reasons to believe this isn't just, you know, 2020 hindsight, frankly, it, it, it almost certainly had a real effect on what happened in that clubhouse and how the team played after this trade. I, I couldn't agree with you more, and, and I'm like you. You and I, I think we, you and I, are kind of with the same thinking in this. I, I kind of poo-poo the, the, you know, clubhouse leadership and you know, in, in, intangibles. I hate the intangibles argument, 
But it's really hard to argue on this one when to a man from management on down, they say that this changed the, the, the culture of the team. And not that the team was immediately bad again, but we'll see. Certain things start creeping in that weren't happening before. So part of the reason uh, as well, they had a replacement for Perez, but the Reds were also worried about their starting pitching now that uh, Don Gullett was gone. And obviously Gary Nolan had constantly been injured. Uh, and, and Nolan was also unhappy with his contract situation. So the, uh, part of the the deal was they've traded Perez to get a, a pitcher, a couple pitchers that they hoped would help. Tell us about that trade. Well, they traded Tony Perez and Will McEnany, who'd had the terrible, terrible season in 76, to the Expos for left-hander Woody Fryman and right-hander Dale Murray. Uh, Fryman was an old veteran. Murray was a young guy. Uh, they both would be gone by the, minute, uh, by the middle of 1978, and Fryman would be gone a lot sooner than that. And Sparky Anderson later said that not standing up for keeping Perez was one of his biggest mistakes as Red's manager. And Sparky was never shy about admitting when he made a mistake. And uh, I think it, history has borne out that that was one of his bigger mistakes. Yeah, if you, if you read the, um, the the Red Leg Dynasty book and you get to this section about where they traded Perez, it's very apparent the emotion from the other players, especially like Bench, uh, when they traded Perez, that, that e- even you know whenever they wrote this and whenever they talked about it later, the emotion was still there. It was it was a very big deal when they traded Perez, and and some of the players later kind of conjectured that that. They felt like they, you know, that Housen had broken up the family, and if they, you know, if, if Housen would do this to Perez, you know, he probably could would do it to, you know, to me, me and being Bench or Morgan or Rose or whoever else, and and it was a, a real loss of faith, I think, in management when this happened. Yeah, and it makes all the sense in the world to keep the band together after they've won two in a row. Although most uh, general manager types in all sports will tell you, you got to keep improving, you got to keep making changes you can't just stand still but wouldn't it have been fun to see what the 77 team would have done if they had just uh you know got the band back together for one more run alas it didn't happen let's talk about uh something we discuss again every episode and it's uh, it's a lot different now we talk about the salary discussions the negotiations the arguments and with free agency now uh in the mix it's kind of a, a different world and and there were more salary disputes than ever i guess well, yeah, and the average salary, it took a dramatic, a pretty dramatic jump. Uh, it went from 53.3 in 1976 to 74,000 in and, and if you think of that, you know, in terms of percentage, that's a pretty big, big jump. Yeah, absolutely. That's a huge jump. And uh, from the Reds' perspective, it seemed like everyone wanted a long-term deal and or were complaining about their salary, weren't they? Yeah, they were. And they were like third in the big leagues in, in salary at the time for a team. Uh, but by March of 77, Morgan, Foster, and Griffey all had signed three-year deals. Concepcion got a five-year deal. Uh, Bench, but Bench had already had signed a two-year deal the year before, and he was in the second year of that. And you had to believe that these multi-year deals just killed Bob Housen because, as we found in prior seasons, he wouldn't even talk to people about a, a multi-year deal. And Pete Rose, as <laughs> usual. <laughs> Drama, right? Yeah, and, and you wonder, in retrospect, I mean, Pete liked the publicity. You know, and, and my guess is Pete didn't really think he needed a whole lot of spring training. And 
So, you know, he always liked being the last. I would think Pete liked being the last guy getting into camp. He And anyway, he ended up being the last holdout on this team. And he wanted a $400,000 per year deal. And he wanted a one, two, or three-year deal. And the Reds didn't want to give it to him. And it became a public relations nightmare for the Reds, who, who eventually had to take out a full-page ad in the Enquirer trying to explain their negotiating position. But Rose ultimately signed literally the night before opening day, got a $365,000 deal uh, for two years, uh, $365,000 per year. So we get to the season opening day, just a, a classic, beautiful, sunny opening day, right, Bill? No. no. It was the high temp that day was 41 and they had four inches of snow that morning. That's a, that, that's not... But my, that's not my idea of a fun opening day. It is not. Woody Fryman, newly uh, acquired Woody Fryman, was the opening day starter for the Cincinnati Reds. He actually outdueled the previous year's Cy Young Award winner, Randy Jones of the Padres. Uh, Raleigh Eastwick threw three innings, a one-hit shutout relief. Ken Griffey had three hits. And Bill Plummer started at catcher. And, and Plummer started the next day as well. Johnny Mish didn't play until the third game of the season, although Pete Rose did play after just signing the night before. Bill Plummer yeah. getting some prime time at bats. Yeah, my guess is that's Bill Plummer's only opening day start. And and if you're not familiar with Randy Jones when he was pitching for the Padres, and he was a very very effective pitcher with the Padres for for a number of years, but he was not a hard thrower. Joe Morgan used to. I remember a quote from Joe Morgan saying that Randy Jones couldn't break glass; he threw so easy. <laughs> that's not very nice. <laughs> but they couldn't beat him. I, I've never looked up what his numbers were against the Reds, and I can't remember. But if, if, if my memory tells me that he used to be, he's one of those guys, like Norman was when he was with the Padres, the Reds really, really struggled against these guys, against him. And he had a stretch there where he's a really good pitcher, and he's kind of been lost to history in terms of the general fan these days. Yep. But the season did not start out well. The Reds won only five of their first, teen, first 15 games, and by April 25th, they were already back seven and a half games behind the Los Angeles Dodgers. And, and, and strangely, late in April, they actually won their last five games of April, five-game winning streak, and they dropped a half game in the standings to L.A. So L.A. started well, the Reds started poorly, and so from the gate, the Reds were behind the eight ball, weren't they? Yeah, by, by the end of May, the Reds were three under five hundred, and they were 11 and a half games behind the Dodgers. Dodgers had started 17-3. and three. It's okay. kind of hard to keep up with anybody that wins 17 of their first 20. Yeah, that'll get it done. Absolutely. So June 3rd, uh, a highlight for the Reds. Freddie Norman threw a two-hitter against the Astros, although he walked eight and threw 153 pitches. As we've said many times during this series, it was a different time. Can you imagine somebody uh, making it through 153 pitches to throw a complete game two-hitter these days, Bill? They, most guys don't throw that in two games now. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Now, another recurring theme here, and this is really, it starts to become, this is as bad as it got. June 7th was the amateur draft, and, and tell us what happened in the, the Major League Baseball amateur draft, Bill. Well, in the first round, the Reds drafted a third baseman, a kid named Ted Wenger. And as per par for the course about then, he didn't make the big leagues. And he was the eighth first round draft pick in a row that the Reds made that did not make it to the major leagues. So the scouting that we were bragging about all those years about the Reds had, had really dropped off. We weren't getting the, the information that, that we had gotten in the past. Uh, and this would really hurt the Reds' rebuilding efforts in the late 70s and the early 80s. Uh, 
This trap, I mean, the, the, the high point of this draft for the Reds was they got Joe Price in the fourth round and Tom Foley in the seventh round. Two guys that, that played in the big leagues and you know for the Reds for a number of years, but neither one of them were world beaters. June 10th, for the first time, Tony Perez returned to Cincinnati. He went three for 10 with a double, triple, and four RBIs in that three-game series, but the Reds won two out of three. But it became pretty clear by mid-June that the Reds really had a problem in terms of pitching. And so, uh, Bill, can you tell us how, how they analyzed that problem and what they did about it? Yeah, the, the, as, you, as you said, their, their pitching was really struggling early. Three of their 76 starters were missing. Gullett was in New York pitching for the Yankees. Nolan was hurt again. And Santa Alcala, whose work ethic had always frustrated the Reds, and, and, and so they traded him early in the season. McEnany was gone. Manny Sarmiento had been sick, and they left him in Florida until mid-July. And the, the newcomers that they brought on board in 77, Dale Murray, Woody Fryman, Tom Hume, and Mike Caldwell, at that, through the middle of June, were combining for a 552 ERA. So, so a couple of weeks before the, dread, the, the trade deadline, the Reds decided that there's no way they could catch the Dodgers with what they had in terms of pitching. So Bob Housem started talking, as Bob Housem often did, and his discussions led to the New York Mets, where they were talking about one of the best pitchers in baseball, Tom Seaver, who reportedly wasn't getting along with the New York Mets owner. Uh, the Mets wanted Pat Zachary, who had been the Rookie of the Year, if you heard our last episode, in 1976. It was a really effective season for the Big Red Machine champions. And so uh, the Mets and Reds were trying try to put a deal together. At one point, it included Raleigh Eastwick, uh, but he didn't want to go to New York, so that held up the deal. Shortly before the deadline finally had happened, the Reds sent Pat Zachary, Doug Flynn, and a couple of minor league outfielders, Steve Henderson and Dan Norman, to New York for Tom Seaver. Now, this is a pretty big deal, Bill. Am I right? This is a huge deal, and it's, it's a steal for the Reds. I mean, Pat Zachary had his best year of his career the year before with the Reds. Doug Flynn would always be nothing more than really a utility infielder. I think Steve Henderson got a fair amount of playing time in the big leagues, but was never anybody that, you know, never, you know, an all-star or anything. And I don't even remember whether Dan Norman ever made the big leagues. And you got, you know, three really good years, two and a half really good years out of Tom Seaver. No question. He was 32 at the time of the trade, so he was, uh, you know, older. But, uh, you know, for the next, well, for his time with Cincinnati, he was 75-46 with a 3.18 ERA. I mean, still a very, very effective pitcher. And yeah, He was still Tom Seaver. Yeah, he was still Tom Seaver. That's, that's a good way to put it. I mean, he was really, really uh, at the top of his game still. And so that immediately, you would think, would transform the rotation. And it did in some ways. Obviously, having him in the rotation helped. But that wasn't all they did, although they didn't do a whole lot that uh, helped the the Reds. In the, in terms no, Housem also, he, he, tra- he got rid of Gary Nolan, who had said he was leaving after the season anyway to the Angels. But since he was hurt, the Reds didn't really get anything for him. He moved Raleigh Eastwick to the Cardinals for a young guy named Doug Capella, who was okay. He, he recently acquired Mike Caldwell, and then he turned around and traded him to the Brewers for two guys that never made it to the big leagues. And this is one of his worst deals. Caldwell would go on and go 22-9 and nine and 78 and come in second in the AL Cy Young voting. And he had a really good 79 for the Brewers, too. So what, so what the Reds have found at this point is all of a sudden their pitching staff was pretty old. Uh, Woody Fryman was 37. Freddie Norman was 35. Jack Billingham was 34. Seaver, as you said, was 32. In the bullpen, the guy they'll call up and we'll talk a little bit about in a little while, Joel Horner, 
was 40, Joe Henderson was 31, and Pedro Bourbon was 31. None of these guys were on the right side of 30. Uh, the guys that were were unproven guys like Dale Murray and this Doug Capella and, and Paul Moscow, a rookie, were the only guys on the pitching staff that were getting any innings that were below 30. And it's pretty stark in terms of the way that Bob Hausman had always said, you know, I'd rather trade a guy a year too early than a year too late, how all of a sudden he turns around with this this team with a steal or one of the best offenses in baseball, and they find themselves with this over-the-hill pitching staff. It really, it's like it had been neglected because they had such a good offense, frankly, is what it looked like. And, and maybe they were hoping that Tom Seaver would paper over, paper over some of those problems. On June 18th, Seaver made his debut for the Reds. Three hit shutout, one six to nothing, beating X Red Santo Alcala. Seaver also went two for four. George Foster hit his 18th home run. That pulled the record at that point for the Reds up to 34 and 27. They were within six and a half games of the Dodgers, so they're feeling pretty good. You got Tom Seaver, and you pull as close to the Dodgers as you've been all season long, but that was the high watermark. They never got any closer, did they? Even though Seaver did his part. Yeah, Seaver had a, a really, really good season after coming over for the Reds. Seaver went 14 and three with the Reds with a 2.35 ERA, but it, it wasn't all you know, ice cream and roses on the on the pitching staff. And um, an example of that I mentioned Joel Horner a few minutes ago, a couple of minutes ago. On June 22nd, the Reds brought him up. He was 40 years old, so they bring him in to pitch, and with the bases loaded in his first five pitches. He throws a wild pitch, then three wide to the plate for an intentional walk, and then gives up a grand slam on five pitches. That's not a good that's not a good way to come to your new ball club. Well, he did better, I'm sure, the next time he came out. Well, yeah, five days later against the Giants, he came again they bring him in with the bases loaded. So he plunks the first two guys, and then he gives up a grand slam to Willie McCovey. Now giving up a grand slam to Willie McCovey happened to pitchers a lot better than Joe Horner. But it's still two grand slams you've given up in two outings. That's that's not good. What's Sparky doing bringing him in with the bases loaded? 40 that, years well, old. that tells you that, that must tell you what kind of shape the bullpen was in. It was, and though as we said, Tom Seaver helped out the pitching staff some. Really, it's mostly just bad news. With uh, one little bright spot other than Seaver, the rest of the year, July 11th was not that bright spot. Woody Fryman, he was upset at Sparky Anderson for sending him to the bullpen. Abruptly announces his retirement, headed out for his uh, tobacco farm in Newing, Kentucky. What's that all about, Bill? He just retired. He just said, I quit. <laughs> he does He does come back, but not for the Reds. That's right. Now, this is Woody Fryman, obviously, that was obtained in the uh, Tony Perez trade. And I th- it's at this time, it's uh, instructive maybe to look at what the Reds got out of that deal. Because you think Woody Fryman really was a headliner of that deal. And now he's quitting. He's gone. So at the time, Tony Perez was hitting 269 with 10 homers and 48 RBIs for the Expo. Not a, not Tony Perez's best season, but he was having an effective season for Montreal. Would you compare that at the same time with the Reds? The Reds were probably not upset with Dan Dreesen's output. I mean, he was hitting 303 with 12 homers and 57 RBI at that point. So his offensive numbers look better than Perez, but that does not tell the whole story, as we'll discuss later. Well, and if you if you look at the seasons that, that Prime, and when he, you know, he, he started 12 games for the Reds, Went five and five and a five thirty eight ERA, and his ERA plus was seventy three. And the other guy they got for him, Dale Murray, went seven and two in sixty one games, but his ERA was four ninety four, and his ERA plus was eighty. <laughs> Not good. But July twenty first, having that opening on the pitching staff, gave the Reds an opportunity to call up a twenty one year old Mario Soto, made his major league debut in July 
1977. Now, he would only be 2-6 and six with a 5.34 ERA the rest of that season, but Mario Soto would go on to have one of the best careers of any Cincinnati pitcher ever, and to me, one of the underrated pitchers in uh, Reds history. He's one of the guys that when people say you can't make it on two pitches, he's the guy whose name I always bring up because yeah. he, yeah. he, he made it on two pitches. Dazzling fastball and that incredible circle change, and if, if you can't hit, hit either of those pitches, yeah, you can make it. And who taught him the circle change? Tell us. Joe Nuxall. The old left-hander. July 25th. Pretty big moment there for uh, the Cincinnati Reds. Tell us about it, Bill. Peter Edward Rose breaks the Major League all-time switch hit record with 28-81, bypassing Frankie Frisch. August 5th, Dave Parker, Cincinnati native, became the first player to reach the red the red seats in right field with a home run. Hit it off Fred Norman. Now, that's a pretty big blast uh, out into those red seats anywhere you are. Uh, Dave Parker, of course, a left-handed hitter, but uh, not the last time he would blast one at Riverfront Stadium. Nope. Dave Parker was, uh, well, when he was playing for the Pirates at this point in time, he was just probably the best player in baseball. Yeah. Yeah, he was kind of a freak of nature in a lot of ways. Could do everything. Yep. August 21st, Tom Seaver heads back to Shea Stadium. Threw a six-hitter, struck out 11, doubled, and scored twice. So the Reds, you know, again, kind of hanging in there some. They actually played pretty good baseball, didn't they, in August, as down the stretch, the dog days? Yeah, uh, they played 656 baseball in August. They went 21 and 11, but they could only go from 13 back to eight and a half back by the end of August, and they never got any closer than that. Yeah, just could not. The Dodgers were just uh, so good. The Reds could not make any ground up. September 13th, here's one of those moments we talked about that – give some indication into what it meant not having Tony Perez. And I'll let you tell us about it, but what happens essentially is the Reds get killed by the Astros, 13-4. to 4. And so the Reds are riding to the airport uh, in the bus. Uh, set the stage. Tell us what happened there, Bill. Well, they're going to the airport in the bus, and Anderson and the coaches are sitting up in the front of the bus because the coaches, they always kept the coaches and the managers up in front of the bus. And they hear guys laughing in the back of the bus, and that just was not done. Uh, you had to, whether you really believed that, you know, the world had come to an end after a loss or, or not, that's the way you, you, you know, the way you held yourself. Well, Morgan walked back to the back of the bus to tell players that it wasn't all smiles up front, but the snickering just continued after he left. And the authors of, of Red Leg Dynasty felt that this change in attitude was in large part due to the absence of Tony Perez. They didn't feel like this kind of stuff would have happened when Perez was there. And there's some indication that it might not have. Oh, so that's about where we are with this season. Tom Seaver does win his 200th game on, in September. And you think about bringing in Tom Seaver, Hall of Fame pitcher, to a team that has won two straight World Series championships. Again, that seems like a recipe for real success, but it couldn't. Uh, his heroics couldn't really help the Reds get any closer. He threw a two-hitter five days later. Rose extended his hitting streak to 20 games in a 4-0 win over San Diego, but the Dodgers clinched the division. So, not a uh, not a banner year for the Reds. One highlight though, late in September, right? Yeah, on September the twenty fourth, September the twenty third, George Foster hit his fiftieth home run, which broke the team record of forty nine that had been set by Ted Klazuski in nineteen fifty four. And that's the season. The Reds finish up the season eighty eight and seventy four. Eighty eight wins, obviously not a bad season. They, but they do finish in second place, ten games behind the Los Angeles Dodgers. The Dodgers, of course, would go on as noted earlier, to lose to the Yankees in the World Series four games to two. And wrap up some of the season for us, Bill, if you would. 
Well, Foster had an incredible season. He had an 8.4 wins above replacement. He won the MVP. He led the league in runs, home runs, RBIs, slugging, and OPS, and total bases. Uh, as I said, he finished first in the MVP voting. The next red was Pete Rose at 15th. And that's the first time all decade that they hadn't had multiple guys in the top 10, I would have to believe, without going back and looking. Uh, Johnny Bench recovered from his, his bad 76, and he had a five wins above replacement season, going hitting 275, 378 with a 540 uh, slugging and a 133 OPS plus, and he had 31 home runs that year. And the team did set a club record for fewest errors in a season with 95. Joe Morgan had a, a, a good year, but not as good as the two previous years. He had almost six wins above replacement that season, a hit 288, 22 home runs. Got on base at a 417 clip, which is pretty good. David Concepcion had a you know, decent year. Uh, you said Johnny Bench. King Griffey had over four wins above replacement as well. So you know, the offense was, was pretty good, but the pitching was, uh, was not. Tom Seaver and Fred Norman were the only red starters above average. Now, Paul Moscow, he was close, uh, and that would end up being his uh, best major league season. He was about average. Pedro Borbon was still good. Manny Sarmiento was good when he was healthy, but the rest, just there's nothing really to talk about. And that's the, that's the story of the 1977 Cincinnati Reds. The other story for 1977 and beyond, obviously we've talked about it several times, and let's kind of look at Dan Dreesen versus Tony Perez. Because the, the reason that uh, Bob Hausman felt like he could trade Tony Perez was they had a guy waiting in the wings, and Dan Dreesen ended up having a pretty good career. But let's kind of look, if we could, Bill, at Dreesen versus Perez after the trade. What can you tell us? Well, Perez was playing in Montreal, and, and it's they were playing in Olympic Stadium. And it was a slightly pitcher-friendly park, if you look at baseball reference. And Perez's three-year average, he, you know, which was 77, 78, and 79, which is the period that we're talking about here, he averaged a 281, 338 on base, and a 447 slugging, an OPS plus of 115, and he averaged 33 doubles, four triples, and 15 home runs, and with a wins above replacement of 6.6. Do you want to talk about Dreesen? Sure, sure. Hitting in Cincinnati, which was a slightly hitter-friendly park at that time. His three-year average in those same three years, 267 average, 350 on base, 427 slugging. So his OPS plus was 111 as compared to 115 for Tony Perez. 26 doubles, three triples, uh, 17 homers. His wins above replacement, 5.1 during that time, which is, again, not bad. But his defensive uh, wins above replacement, way down, negative 2.7, frankly. So uh, what you see at, I think, Bill, it's fair to say that offensively they were about even, although I think you can maybe give uh, a slight edge to Perez offensively, and you certainly give a, uh, an edge to Perez defensively as well over that time. If you're going by the de- defensive wins above replacement, you said that Dreesen was like minus 2.7. Again, these are baseball reference numbers. Perez was only minus minus 1.4. Now he was no Keith Hernandez down there, but you know he was he was probably almost you know almost twice as good as Dreesen was defensively. So if you look at the numbers, as you said, Perez was a little bit better and Dreesen was about twice as bad defensively. But the biggest loss, you know, by all accounts, were the intangibles that we that we talked about earlier. The things like leadership, his his or his uh, relationships with the Latin players. In the atmosphere that he fostered in the Reds clubhouse. And in the stuff I've read, there isn't a whole lot of talk, a whole lot, a lot of talk. There's some 
about the loss of this leadership in 77, but it's mentioned quite a bit in Red Leg Dynasty for, during the 78 season. And we'll, we will end up talking about that quite a bit uh, as well next season. You know, the argument is that you have a guy who is ready to take over here. And I you know, I can kind of see what Housen was thinking. Now, I can't justify him not getting anything in return, essentially. But I can kind of see what he's thinking. But then again, Nandreeson was a pretty good player for the Reds. If you look at his stats, he really was a pretty good player for the Reds that a lot of people don't maybe don't know outside of this. He's a, Red, he's a Reds Hall of Famer. Yeah, yeah. Outside of this uh, Tony Perez uh, controversy, a lot of people don't know him, though. Um, but I think you can make an argument that Tony Perez was better, slightly better offensively. He was better defensively. And, you know, if you add in the leadership, then the fact that they traded Tony Perez at all is a scandal. And the fact they traded him for a guy that retired three months into the season, really, it gets into that territory of being one of the worst deals in Reds history, I think. Don't you agree? Yeah, I, I think you, I think you're making a good point. It, there's two different ways of looking at this. One is trading Perez at all and how much flack you want to take for that. And the other is the trade itself and what you got, which was nothing. So Housen was basically, you know, the one, the one, you know, trading Perez, I think you can make the justification for, especially when they felt like they had somebody they could replace him with. And, and they undervalued the intangibles, whether that's you're right or wrong. But the trade itself, what they got for him, there's no defense of that. Exactly. You can justify trading Perez uh, for the same reasons that Bob Housen did justify it. And if they'd have gotten Tom Seaver in return, it would have been different, perhaps. But they didn't. You cannot. Uh, you can't defend what they did get back. The Reds' attendance dropped a little bit. Third in the National League, only two point five million, and only two point five million. <laughs> I know. I know exactly. You're right, <laughs> Bill. There are some questions about this team. Can you tell? What are the, what are the primary questions as we get to the end of '77 and go into '78? Well, I think as '77 ends, what you're having to think is. Is this team aging and getting worse, or had the Dodgers just gone past them and gotten better? Was this a one-year issue, or was it a trend? And and the other question you had to have was: Are you can you really be disappointed in a team that won 88 games? I guess we'll have to wait and see in 1978. Thank you for listening to Building the Machine, the brand new podcast series from Red Leg Nation Radio. To get each episode of the show delivered to you automatically, subscribe to Red Leg Nation Radio. You can find us at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play. Essentially, wherever you find podcasts, we're there. Many of the facts, figures, and anecdotes from today's episode came from BaseballReference.com and the books Red Leg Journal by Greg Rhodes and John Snyder, Big Red Dynasty by Greg Rhodes and John Arardi, and The Big 50, The Men and Moments That Made the Cincinnati Reds by Chris Garber. Until next time, for Bill Lack, this is Chad Dotson saying so long, everyone. 